0: You've discovered TalkZone.com, the best in Internet talk radio.
1: TalkZone.com
0: Now, The Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, M.D., and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins.
2: Hi, and welcome to The Dr. Robbins Show. We bring you the latest medical info and stories. I'm a doctor, and this is a real medical show. We don't really sell anything on the program. My co-host is social worker Susie Robbins. You can email us at doclarryrobbins at AOL.com. We have an exciting show that includes people losing time off of work from headaches, what is behind risky teen behavior, mammograms, who should get them, who shouldn't, and a lot more. How about if we start with a story last week, lost work due to migraines. And this was an interesting article. There's been a number of articles like this. Uh, preventative treatment with Topamax, which is a newer headache drug, that it's also a seizure drug used for headaches, is associated with, in this study at least, a reduction in lost productivity due to migraines, researchers report. On average, Topamax use reduced total loss productivity from 14 to about 5 hours per month, and with placebo use, a reduction in lost productivity was also seen, but much less dramatically. The results of our study, the team concluded, suggest that employers should have treatment available for employees with migraine, which decreases absenteeism rates and hours worked during a migraine. So productivity is important to assess in treating an illness, whether it's diabetes or asthma or headaches, not just lost days, decreased productivity. A lot of people with headaches go to work, but they don't work as effectively, and they work at half-mast, and they'll put in three hours' work for an eight-hour day, but they'll punch in for eight hours. And a lot of traditional standards have looked at lost days of work, but that doesn't tell the whole story. There's actually There's been a number of studies on this, uh, mostly out of Europe, a couple out of the United States on financial loss due to headaches. And it ends up being about $20 billion, that's billion with a B, due to headaches a year in the United States. Uh, back pain also causes a lot of money, uh, a lot of lost uh, money and um, lost financial uh, work time. But the biggest by far is depression. Uh, the last statistics I saw from a few years ago, about $65 billion were lost due to depression. And that doesn't always include lost productivity. Now, over to my co-host, Susie. I know you've had migraines and uh, battled these before. What do you think about uh, this whole subject?
1: Well, it's, it's really heartening to hear that medicines such as a Topamax can really alleviate headaches and allow somebody to get back to work. Now, from what I understand, Topamax is a preventative medicine, which means the patient will take Topamax before the migraine actually comes on. Is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Well, in my experience with migraines, I've never taken Topamax, but maybe some of the listeners out there who get migraines have tried a triptan medicine, such as Imitrex, which I've taken for years. That I take after the headache comes on. I don't know if there's any listeners out there that know that feeling of, oh, here comes the migraine. I know for myself it's behind an eye. So once I realize that this is a migraine and it's not going anywhere, I'll take an imitrex and, boom, within 20 minutes that headache's gone.
2: Yeah, and that points out we have two types of medicine for headaches. Daily prevention medicine that some people take, like Topamax or Amitriptyline or Inderol, others. And there's a couple of good natural ones. And then we have as-needed medicines, like imitrex or the triptans, are the most popular because about 70% of people do well with those. Uh, we've actually used less daily prevention medicines in the last 15 years because we have better as-needed medicines, which are the triptans. Uh, but you say that, uh, Susie, you took Imatrex. Did you get any side effects from Imatrex? Did it make you feel weird or tingly or anything?
1: Well, I definitely got some side effects. I definitely did not feel weird, but I What I would get is kind of a tightening in my neck, and um, my swallowing felt very odd, almost like um, tingling, like goosebumps. Um, And then I'd get tired. But, you know, what a trade-off? I'd rather have that than that pounding migraine any day.
2: Yeah, better tired than a horrible headache with nausea. Now, Susie, what about uh, the cost of Imitrex or the triptans?
1: I know for myself, when I go to the pharmacy and get, get my Imitrex, comes to about $22 a pill. I know, I know. It's really expensive. But if you think about it, if you need, say, three of them a month and you feel that migraine coming on when you wake up in the morning, which is for many people when the migraines actually start, you take an Imitrex, $22 a pop, but you're able to go to work for the full day, it's worth it.
2: Yeah, 22 is a lot. It, does, it Imitrex and the triptan still save people money because it gives them pass their back their day, But uh, still, in this country, the drugs are priced too high. We need to come down on the price of drugs. Now, I want to segue over to another story from last week that was in the news. Uh, The title was Risky Teen Behavior May Be All in the Brain. And a new review of adolescent brain research suggests that society is wasting billions of dollars on education and intervention programs trying to dissuade teens from dangerous activities because their immature brains are not yet capable of avoiding risky behaviors. The analysis, which was done by Temple University, uh, a, a psychologist there, says that stricter laws and policies limiting their behaviors would be more effective than education programs. Quote, we need to rethink our whole approach to preventing teen risk. Adolescents are at an age where they do not have full capacity to control themselves. As adults, we need to do some of the controlling, which I certainly agree with. Now, neurological researchers in recent years have found that the brain is not fully developed until after age 18. We used to think it was developed by age 16 or 17. And the brain system that regulates logic and reasoning develops before the area that regulates impulse and emotions. Gee, you know, adolescence and impulsivity, that's a, a real new one. Actually, it's interesting. Impulsiveness, which is taking a drug impulsively, quitting a job, uh, driving really fast, spending all your money. Impulsiveness or impulsive behavior really is a key thing to look at in certain problems such as ADD, attention deficit, uh, in uh, certain people with depression as far as predicting how they'll be. The more impulsive people are, the worse off the prognosis for the next 10 years. Now, the researcher says that, quote, I don't believe the problem behind teen risky behavior is a lack of knowledge. The programs do a good job in teaching kids the facts, but education alone doesn't work. It seems to uh, not affect their behavior, Kids will sign drug pledges. They really mean that, but when they get in a park with their peers on a Friday night, the pledge is nowhere to be found in their brain. They're missing their neurologic breaks that adults hopefully do have. Do you remember D.A.R.E., the widely popular drug abuse-resistant education program? I know that our kids uh, were with D.A.R.E. and we went to D.A.R.E. programs. Uh, It was launched about 20 years ago or so. And it was finally determined to be somewhat ineffective. And I think that that goes along with this new research showing maybe we have to rethink, uh, quote, education. We don't want to stop educating teens on drugs and risky behavior, but we do, do need outside controls. They have uh, letting teens with unlimitless um, behavior with no consequences and no laws has not worked out very well. So the researchers say the bottom line is, quote, we've given them too much freedom. We don't monitor and supervise them carefully enough, which uh, I'll say absolutely is true. Susie, what do you think about uh, teens and risky behavior?
1: Well, I think that it's always been there, and obviously it, it continues. I think peer pressure has got to be looked at as a huge problem for teens in terms of Their behavior and their acting out. Certainly, we know that um, stress and situations in the homes may drive kids to act out outside of the home. I do agree with you that um, issues that are talked about in Dare programs or other similar programs geared for adolescents um, drive the drive the message across that hey, you know, you're you're going to have problems if you're drinking and driving and doing drugs out there and i do agree that most kids when they're in those programs really do get it and believe it but then they get back out in the trenches with friends and other kids and they start it all over again
2: absolutely i think that what you're saying is is so right and i think goes along with this research that We can teach them all we want about drugs, but when they get around the kids and they're offering it and they're around, they don't have the part of their brain that's matured yet enough to tell them, don't do this. Susie?
1: On the other hand, I would not suggest taking away some of these programs because a lot of these programs are good and they do get kids thinking. I think, you know, as we've heard the term... Uh, it takes a village to raise a kid, and I think that yes, we need more from the parents, but I don't think it's time to let go of of the support that the schools can give in terms of groups and um, education as well. Absolutely, and something
2: is working. You know there was uh, on this program, we touched on a study about two months ago uh, that came out of um, uh, major research that teen drug use and alcohol is down a bit in this country versus 5 and 10 years ago. So, something good is happening anyways. Now, on another topic, a study this week on mammograms in women under 50, uh, a physician's group issued new breast cancer screening guidelines. It seems as if we get new ones every other month. For women in their 40s, that leaves the decision about whether to get a mammogram up to the women and their doctors. Quote, the evidence is not strong enough to say that all women should be screened and it should be based on individual reasons. The group also advises younger women to consider the harmful effects of mammograms, which include false positive results. A false positive is showing up some little smudge or something on a test, and then you have to chase it down with either more tests or biopsies. It's time-consuming. It raises anxiety levels. Uh, and it's costly. So false positives are a risk for a lot of procedures. Uh, you get some radiation exposure. Uh, you get false reassurance and pain during the mammogram procedure. So there are some downsides to mammograms, not that much. Now, various groups recommend that women older than 40 do get regular mammograms at least every three years with some recommending annual exams. The American Cancer Society says that the new guidelines are not correct. They disagree. They say that they depart from years of consensus based on scientific evidence. And the American Cancer Society says that it would be a major health setback if these new guidelines cause some women and their doctors to conclude that screening can safely be postponed. So, with all these conflicting evidences about mammograms, what should you do? My take is that after age 50, annual mammograms are suggested. Prior to 50, it really depends on your risk factors, particularly family history. Uh, family history is crucial of breast cancer. Also probably smoking and obesity may be risk factors for, uh, increase in cancer. And the bottom line is go to your gynee or your family doctor one time, uh, at least once a year and talk about it. Now, Susie, um, I know that you've volunteered in this area, in oncology, uh, but you've had mammograms. What do you think about this whole controversy with mammograms?
1: Well, I think mainly it surprised me that uh, women in their 40s are being told at this point that maybe you don't have to have it every year. Obviously, it's a personal choice for me. I, As long as I always can, I will always want to have a mammogram every year. I understand that the false positives could be a hassle and, you know, be frustrating for women. I can even understand the small dose of radiation each year, although myself I'm willing to take that risk. But you know, the concern that the pain of the actual mammogram might be a reason not to have it done in your 40s, I just don't get that. It's uncomfortable, yeah, but it takes three minutes. For myself, I'd rather have the pain of a mammogram than going through the pain of breast cancer. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. You know,
2: part of the pain of medical tests in our medical system is the cost these days. And with uh, at least 40 million Americans without medical insurance, mammograms do cost money. Uh, in, you know, in looking for a mammogram place, I would go for a very experienced place where a human reads them, Uh, It was just another study this week showed that the computerized assisted reading of mammograms does not work as well as an experienced human reading them. So I think where you get the mammogram actually is important. But I agree, you know, the pain of a mammogram or going through a test is one thing, but the agony of breast cancer uh, far outweighs that.
1: Now, Elizabeth Edwards is someone that we've all been reading about in the news She, who has um, recurrent breast cancer, has come out and said, as most of us know, that maybe if she had had regular mammograms in her early 50s, she would not have this recurrent breast cancer right now. I personally think she's very, very brave for saying that. Um, But what if she or anybody got breast cancer in the early 50s, and they're thinking, well, why didn't I get that mammogram at 48 and 49? It would be a tough thing to live with. Well,
2: absolutely. I, I, I still think that um, regular mammograms are a very good idea. Uh, there is another test, the MRI that's coming along, and in certain women with high risk uh, with uh, where we really think that uh, there's a Real possibility uh, of a higher risk of breast cancer, it may be a consideration to do an MRI of the breast. It is a lot more costly, and insurances are very iffy on this. The other problem with outside of the cost of MRI is uh, we seem to have even a higher incidence of false positives, and then chasing down that with more biopsies. Now, on another front, uh, there was a good article this week on mental illness being common in returning U.S. soldiers. High rates of mental health disorders were being diagnosed among U.S. military personnel soon after being released from duty in Iraq or Afghanistan. They estimate that 25% of returning soldiers had a mental health diagnosis, and those most at risk were the youngest soldiers and those with the most combat exposure. So the young kids, 18 to 25, who had extended tours of duty were at most risk for having some mental health disorder. The most frequent diagnoses were post-traumatic stress disorder. Other diagnoses included anxiety, depression, substance use, or other behavioral problems. Quote, the youngest group of active-duty veterans, age 18 to 24, had a significantly higher risk of receiving one or more mental health diagnoses and post-traumatic stress disorder compared with active-duties vets who are 40 years or older. Now, this is really a very sad, sad fallout of any war. You know, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder was called different things in previous wars, but it's been described uh, in accounts in every war where they've had written accounts, it's always been present. It always hasn't been recognized or treated very well. The soldiers with it, particularly Civil War, World War I, even World War II were marginalized, were not treated very well. At least now we recognize the post-traumatic stress disorder and hopefully get the young people into some sort of therapy. Susie, my co-host, what do you think?
1: Well, as you're talking about that, I can't help but think about, you know, the pictures we see in the newspaper of the returning vets who are coming out of, say, Walter Reed, who have lost arms and legs and physical problems such as those. But the mental illness, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, you can't see. And it's just as sad, and I just wonder if, all of the vets who need help with these mental issues after the war are getting it. What I also find um, difficult to think about in terms of this is the legacy that uh, the war vet is, can possibly carry on within his family because, say, a young war vet comes home, he's got post-traumatic, it's going to affect himself, it's going to affect his spouse, his children, and then, you know, pass down to the next generation.
2: Very well said. You know, uh, I worked at the VA 25 years ago uh, at the Veterans Administration in Chicago, and we did see a lot of post-traumatic stress among Vietnam vets. And generally, it's treated with therapy, seeing a therapist, and medicine for the depression-anxiety part of it. Not that any treatment is terrific. There's also other treatments. One of them, it works on eye-tracking muscles called EMDR, and that's been somewhat helpful, but it really is a sad, sad fallout of war. But at least the vets coming back, we recognize it, and hopefully we should really push vets to get into therapy, maybe get on medicine. I think it's uh, remarkably helpful treated versus untreated. Uh, It can affect their kids, their relationships, everything. Now, this article did look at veterans and mental health disorders, but... In the general population, in non-veterans, mental health disorders are very common. There's a whole lot of depression around. There's a lot of anxiety. You know, the lifetime prevalence of depression is about 17% of the population gets into major depressions at least once in their life or chronic mild depression, and uh, that's very, very common. Anxiety, generalized anxiety, is very common. Bipolar depression, if you look at the whole spectrum of bipolar including the mild end of the bipolar spectrum, which we've talked about on the show before, it's very, very common. We're going to take a little bit of a break in a sec. That's the end of the segment. We have lots of cool stuff coming up. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins. I'm a neurologist, and you can email us at doclarryrobbins at AOL.com. That's D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. I'm joined by my wife and social worker, Susie Robbins. The Dr. Robbins Show is all about interesting topics in medicine, and our website is HeadacheDrugs, that's one long word, HeadacheDrugs.com. We'll be back in a sec.
0: Now more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com.
2: Now, there was another depression story in the news that's very depressing to me because there was a device made by Cyberonics that I had some hopes for, for tough depressions. Depression is is a major problem, and the medicines only work reasonably well for 70 75% of people. That leaves a lot of millions of people where medicines aren't great or they can't tolerate the medicines. And U.S. Medicare officials dealt the latest blow to the troubled device maker cyberonics today by refusing to cover its implantable depression device. Now, this device was a vagal nerve stimulator device that they've used for epilepsy and sometimes for headaches also. Uh, The problem is that it hasn't worked well enough in studies. Medicare officials flatly rejected the device and raised new concerns about the FDA's decision a few years ago to approve vagal nerve stimulation. Uh, What we need are better treatments for depression, though, and I was hoping that this might help. What's coming along, though, what looks reasonable may be magnetic stimulation, transcranial magnetic stimulation, maybe for headaches, maybe for depression, but um, the early skinny on it for depression is that it's not working as well as earlier we had thought. Uh, I was hoping that these magnetic stimulators might help depression but they're still in in uh some testing now depression you know i mentioned earlier on the show depression costs the country at least 65 billion dollars a year it's probably more you know mostly they look at lost work days or school days but uh lost productivity a lot of people with depression uh fumble and mumble over to work but don't do very much uh, now, we've talked on the show before about medicines. We'll talk in the future about medicines for depression. And if you have any questions about this, depression, or anything, email us at Dr. at Robbins at com. But uh, how about outside of medicine? Uh, we have exercise. I encourage people to exercise 15 or 20 minutes a day. But, Susie, what do you think? How about therapy for depression?
1: I think therapy is absolutely an integral part of dealing with depression, along with medicine, and as you said, exercise, and um, I think for most people, if they've never been in therapy, what's really feels good about it in the beginning is having a place to go where you can feel trust in somebody else who's not somebody who knows you in an intimate sort of way, like a good friend or a relative. Now.
2: One problem with uh, therapy for depression is always the cost. People say their insurance doesn't pay. Somehow, insurances will pay for a lot of goofy things that don't work, and the things that really work, like depression for therapy uh, or therapy for depression, they won't pay as well. Uh, Susie, what do you think about the economic and pain for therapy?
1: I think it's a big concern for people and. In- I think you and I both have heard many people say, well, if it wasn't for the money, I would get into therapy. Um, but if you know somebody or if it's for you and you're really thinking about wanting to uh, go into therapy and to see somebody, I suggest first checking with your, if you've got health insurance, check it out and see what kind of benefits you can get. For many people, they may get a certain amount of time where the insurance company could pay, say, 60 to 80% of each visit. Another tip that you could think about is many areas have community health centers where you can go and you'd fill out an application. You don't need to have health insurance. Uh, What they would do is evaluate you on a a sliding scale in terms of how much money you make, which hopefully for most people it would be just a small amount that they'd have to pay each time they went. I know many, um, I think it's called Jewish Family Centers, have them, where you don't have to be Jewish to go to it. I know other community-type places have it where if you live within a certain range of the center, you would also be allowed to go. So I think it's really worth checking out and seeing what's in your what's in your neighborhood.
2: Yeah, people ask a lot, how do I find a sliding-scale place? And uh, they're usually called family service centers or service center of such-and-such such county. Or what I sometimes tell is people just out of the Yellow Pages call a psychologist that they know or social worker, uh, call the psychology or the psychiatric uh, offices and ask what are the sliding scale places or what are the free places around that they can go if they don't have insurance and don't have the money to pay for therapy. Susie, how about any other avenues to get therapy?
1: Well, How about as a first step? If you've tried the local neighborhoods, newspapers, um, Yellow Pages, and you're not coming up with anything, how about starting with your church, your place of worship? Um, it might be a place you could at least start and maybe you know, go and talk to uh, a clergy member there. Sometimes what people really need is just an hour to sit down and talk with somebody and, and to get a little guidance and to clear their heads.
2: Absolutely. Now. On another subject, there was another annoying development this week. There was a really good irritable bowel medicine. Irritable bowel is a common condition where people get constipation or diarrhea and cramps or esophageal reflux pain in the esophagus area. That's usually a lifelong condition. And we have medicines that can treat the diarrhea. We don't have much to treat the chronic constipation that is really annoying to people. And one of the medicines... Was called Zelnorm, Z E L N O R M, and it was terrific for a lot of people. And this week, the FDA recommended that they withdraw it from the market, and the company took it off of the market because there were a few more people on Zelnorm that had heart problems versus the people who weren't not on Zelnorm. Now, out of 18,000 patients that were assessed, there were 13 on Zelnorm that uh, did have some heart problems and uh, there were much less on placebo, but that's 13 out of 18,000 patients. But the FDA concluded that the benefits do not outweigh the risks. Now, already I've seen patients where the only thing that helped their constipation was Elnorm. They had to go off of it, and it's really too bad. You know, my question is with drugs like this: okay, if they have a few more side effects, why can't they leave it on the market, leave it up to patients and their doctors? Have patients sign a special form, but leave it at least as an availability. There's been a number of drugs like that. Hopefully this drug, Zelnorm, will come back. I think that uh, they zipped it off the market a little too fast. And as I said, we don't have very much that effectively treats chronic constipation. And all these people who go on a drug like this have tried the over-the-counter fiber and Metamucil and uh, all kinds of things like that. Now, another study uh, asks, really, is bottled water really better than tap water? And this is interesting. There's been a lot of of controversies about bottled water. Bottled water may not be necessarily healthier or safer than tap water. It turns out that 25% of all bottled water is actually just repackaged tap water. Ha, ha, ha. Moreover, tests on a 1,000 bottles of 100 different brands of bottled water found man-made chemicals, bacteria, and arsenic in over a fifth of the bottles. I have to admit, you know, they do make a lot of moolah money on bottled water. But is it worth it? You know, maybe not, according to the, uh, this recent information. And there's been other studies like this where they had people who swear by bottled water. They had them taste test where they weren't labeled and they could not tell the difference between bottle and tap. Some people, I'm sure, can, but most people probably can't. And I think that it depends what part of the country we live in how good our tap water is. If we're lucky enough to live next to a uh, a big lake and it's easy to get water, the tap water tends to be pretty good. Now, at least um, with bottled water... Uh, it's plain water. You know, I hate the idea they have all these caffeine waters now where they're throwing caffeine and getting everybody jittery with insomnia into their water. Susie, what do you think about the bottled water craze?
1: Well, first of all, I want to put it out there that I cannot taste the difference between bottled water and tap water.
2: Yeah, I can't either.
1: To me, as long as it's really cold, it tastes great to me. Um, but, you know, you walk down the aisle at the supermarket and what do you see in the water section? So many different kinds of waters, different bottles, different shapes of bottles, different names. They all sound like they're from a glacier in Norway. Um, you've got your Fiji water that the bottle says the water is from Fiji. I don't know. Maybe it's all fitting into the whole craze that everybody seems to get swept up with, with things that are designer made.
2: You know we've gone goofy in this country in other similar areas. you know we all want our designer clothes and designer coffees. I admit that uh, I'm a Starbucks uh addict you know i start I have to tell my little Starbucks story. I think I have to i I did start out on uh, just plain coffee and then graduated a latte and now it's decaf half caf mocha latte, and uh, it gets pretty crazy. What it is, I think, is an excuse to uh, for me to turn 25 cents of coffee and eight cents of cream into uh, spending 3.92. But I've seen this before with Back to the Water with uh, analysis of tap water and bottle water, and it started about eight nine years ago where they said, you know, this water that said that they're coming from the ultimate glacier, et cetera, actually came from the local lake.
1: How do you get? How do they get away with that? You yeah, know, I don't know what the
2: regulation of uh, bottled water is. You know, I'm sure that there are limits, one way or another. That uh, uh, and also with advertising, a lot of it is marketing. The color of the cap, the color of the bottle, um, really determines how much people will pick out of the out of the uh, store. But it seems as if we need more truth in names. If they say uh, Swiss water, it maybe should actually have some water from Switzerland. I don't know. Now, on another study, there was uh, there's a new migraine headache drug coming, and um, a new migraine combo drug is coming. It's called Trexema, which combines sumatriptan, which is imitrex, and naproxen, which is like Aleve, which are two commonly used headache treatments. And the two of them... Controlled symptoms of a headache better than anyone alone. The researchers in the study, and there's been other studies on this combination, found that the combination pill worked better than either treatment alone, and researchers do believe that it might be because it targets migraine in several ways on several fronts. This newer drug, Trexema, may be available sometime after August 1st. So this drug does combine a great migraine drug, imitrex or sumatriptan, with Aleve or naproxen. It's a good combination, but it certainly can increase stomach irritation or issues because of the naproxen. And what we really need with a lot of areas is new novel drugs that have different mechanisms of action. This is good. It's combining two well-known drugs, but we need new drugs for pain, for headaches, for depression, and new ones are coming. It's just slow. It's a, it's a mighty long road to developing new mechanisms of action and drugs. There's a new one coming for headaches eventually that I think works on a protein in the brain that uh, uh, causes some of the headaches. Susie, what's your take on the newer uh, headache drug? I know you've taken Imitrax. You mentioned it before in this, uh, this show. What do you think about Trexema?
1: Well, I think for people who can do better in taking Trexema because it does have the Aleve-like medicine in it that's great, but I hope that they continue to make uh, the triptans that have just the Imatrex-type medicine in there. I certainly don't need the Aleve, it works great for me without it, so I'd rather keep it like that.
2: Now, in another area, here's an interesting study. The title is, Past Drug Use May Affect Grandchildren. A mother's drug use may have far-reaching consequences, eventually affecting the self-esteem of her grandchildren, new research suggests. In a study of three generations of urban minority families, researchers found that children whose grandmothers had a history of drug abuse tended to have poorer self-esteem than their peers, the connection appeared to be explained by the second generation. That is, women whose mothers abused drugs had a more troubled relationship with their own children, and that makes sense. The findings suggest that poor parenting skills are being passed down through the generations of drug-affected families, according to the researchers. This implies that addressing future grandmothers' drug problems could have positive effects on multiple generations they concluded that improving grandmothers' parenting skills and preventing or intervening to reduce drug use affects not only their own behavior, their children's behavior, but also the development of their grandchildren. So if a mom is a drug abuser, uh, she's going to be a poor parent in general, probably, and her child may very well be deficient in parenting, and that affects subsequent generations down the line. This makes a lot of sense to me uh, that one person's drug abuse and parenting skills, or lack of, will affect their kids and their kids' kids. Susie?
1: I think it certainly makes a lot of sense. Uh, Would you include alcoholism in with the drugs? Because certainly alcoholism will affect uh, the coming generations as well. Yeah, I think
2: in drug abuse, you would have to usually throw in alcohol because it's a drug and uh, it really affects people as much or more than a lot of the other drugs.
1: And how about grandparents, too, and grandfathers? Obviously, you know, you've, you've got the grandmothers and they're um, teaching their skills or their lack of skills are being passed down to the next generation I'd be curious to know how that would have, how families would be affected by the father's drug use too.
2: I'm sure they are greatly. This study, this particular study focused on grandmothers or on uh, moms, but I'm sure that the, the dad's drug abuse and alcohol and absenteeism affects not only the kids because they don't have a father or they have a bad father or an abusive father or a drunk father all the time but it affects the kids' kids. Now, the problem is getting at drug abuse and alcohol uh, it is tough in any setting, but I think it has been shown that programs uh, do help. Uh, they don't work for everybody, but the more uh, substance abuse programs we can set up, whether it's in affluent areas or in the inner city, comes back triple in spades for uh the community. While well, we're coming up to another very brief break, this is the Dr. Robbins Show. We are all about interesting medical info and stories. You can email us at doc Larry Robbins at AOL, that's D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. Our website is Headache Drugs, that's one long word, Headache Drugs at AOL. Coming up in a few seconds, we'll talk about... LASIK problems. After LASIK, we'll talk about random team drug testing. Is drug testing a good idea for teenagers? We can get into most Americans don't eat smart and exercise, which is sort of self-obvious, but I'd like to talk about it. So we'll be right back in a few seconds.
0: We're building the best Internet talk radio on the planet. It is worldwide. TalkZone.com. Talkzone.com. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins.
2: We are back. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins here with my co-host, Susie Robbins. And there was an interesting study this week on LASIK and problems. LASIK is the laser-based vision correction. And it usually results in greatly improved vision, but occasionally it can be followed by clouding in the center of the cornea and poorer vision. Fortunately, the corneal clouding usually does resolve on its own, according to two eye doctors in Los Angeles, and the related vision problem is reversed with repeated laser, but you need another procedure. Now, you have to know, go in with your eyes wide open into LASIK, that there are risks. It has been oversold somewhat in this country. Uh, There's some websites that show you the risks, such as surgicaleyes.com. I would go into LASIK really understanding that there are a few percent of people who get serious side effects. Sometimes they don't go away so easily. Do your research on it. And I would suggest not going for the cheapy mall quickie uh, LASIKs that uh, they offer for five or six hundred dollars at quickie LASIK and just see you. They need a really uh, very experienced LASIK surgeons and a proper evaluation first. Really, research who is the best in your area at doing LASIK. Susie?
1: Well, I think for most people, if they want to do it and it's a good outcome, go for it. Um, I myself am nearsighted, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there are. It was about three or four years ago. I went in for a regular eye exam, and I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but I, I don't mind the eye exam, but I really don't like having that glaucoma test. Oh, the
2: little puff of air?
1: Yeah, it's that puff of air to make sure that you don't have glaucoma.
2: It's annoying, yeah.
1: So I went in, you know, that's all was on my mind is, oh, I'm going to have to have this glaucoma test. Anyways, I got in there, and bam, right away I was told what a great candidate I was for LASIK because of um, the type of uh, vision deficiency I had. And, you know, I wasn't interested at all, and the ophthalmologist was telling me I should really consider it. The woman that did the test, uh, did my eye test, said I should. And I left there thinking, wow, this feels kind of like a LASIK factory here. And there was no convincing to me to get it. And I think it's just because there is that small minority of people that do have problems afterwards. And I just don't want to take a chance myself on it.
2: Yeah, I think some things have been oversold in our country. LASIK somewhat, for one. Although, the right person, LASIK is fine and they get a good result. Uh Certain plastic surgeries, I think, it's a whole other topic, but, uh, you know, we have a lot of young women getting plastic surgery in various types, hoping that it will help uh, this and that. And some people, it does enhance their self esteem, but very often, uh, if you take somebody who's psychiatrically troubled and you do a lot of plastic surgery, uh, they just end up more depressed sometimes. I think we have to think about overselling medical procedures in our country. Now, on another front, there was an interesting uh, article this week on school-based drug testing for teenagers. Is it a good idea, really? Uh, School-based drug testing has been proposed as a way to fight teen drug abuse, but a study published this week suggests that many test results could be easily misinterpreted. Is drug testing in teens really a very good idea? The problem is that mass screenings at schools would be unlikely to include the extensive testing and rigorous procedures used in teen drug abuse programs, according to the study authors. An expansive drug test panel beyond the routine screening tests would be very, very expensive. And using only the screening tests would mean that we'll miss a lot of things, such as oxycodone or oxycontin. They don't routinely test for that. There's also the chance of teens testing positive when they're not abusing drugs, and that's always a problem. Certain cross-reacting chemicals in foods and medicines lead to false positive drug tests. For example, some cold medicines, uh, some high doses of caffeine, and um, poppy seeds is another one. The study authors say that, quote, misinterpretation of test results in either direction, positive or negative, can have devastating consequences, whether that that means missing teens who are in trouble or falsely accusing those without a drug problem. Drug testing is really a complex procedure and one best left to those with expertise. There is a huge cost factor to this. We're talking about testing hundreds of thousands or millions of teenagers, is it a good idea or not? There's issues of confidence. The teens may look at it as big brother, just people watching over, testing their urine all of a sudden. There's practical issues and financial issues. You know, some of my patients, I have primarily a neurologic and headache pain practice, but we do treat a lot of adolescents and sometimes parents have said, will you test my teenager for drugs? And it brings up a lot of confidentiality issues. I don't... It's always like... It's sort of like checking teenagers' email. also. You know, it's like you're going behind their back. I don't know about the whole subject. I've declined to do it. Uh, Susie, what do you think about uh, drug testing in teenagers?
1: Well, I think within a family unit, if parents... um, want to have that done privately for their child, then that's that family's prerogative. But it's really hard to imagine having mass drug testing of kids within a school setting. Just, I don't know, it seems kind of un-American, doesn't it?
2: You know, it does seem a little un-American. You know, we're we're going to test the urine on all of our teenagers around. Uh, you know, it uh, it seems a little Big Brother type... And, you know, if we look at the history of drug testing in offices and companies, uh, there's different opinions on whether it's really been worth it. Uh, what a lot of people have said is the pickup rate is so low because people who are uh, uh, abusive, they just stop in time and go do their testing uh, when they're applying for a job or something like that. Or they just don't go to that company, etc. which you could say that's good for a company, but... To do it on millions of teenagers, I just don't know that that's a really good idea. Well, our last article today focuses on Americans eating smart and exercising, which unfortunately they don't do. According to the CDC, only one in seven Americans exercises enough and eats enough fruits and vegetables, and men are worse than women, federal health officials said. Quote, these results underscore the need to promote diets high in fruits and vegetables and regular physical activity among all populations in the United States. They went on to say that people know that they need to be eating more fruits and vegetables, and they know they need to be doing more physical activity, but they're not doing it. Quote, poor diet and lack of physical activity cause chronic disease. As our good habits decrease and you've got a lot of bad habits, then chronic disease is going to increase. Health care costs will also increase. So how do we get in exercise and eat right? I think it's a learning curve. I think it uh, takes a while to segue into it. You have to read a lot, educate yourself, have stuff at home, maybe a bike, uh, a treadmill, elliptical, a headset for walking, People who can afford or have the willingness to go to a health club, they're terrific. Even five minutes twice a day to start out or ten minutes once or twice a day. You can break up exercise into chunks of time. Uh, twice a day or three times a day works just as well as five or ten minutes all uh, or 30 minutes all at once is the same as ten minutes three times a day. And start small with reasonable goals. I think people get into exercise and uh, eating right and they get out of it. And the issue is how to get back into it, the motivation. Once we're back into it, people get on a roll very often and they do well for months or a year or two. Uh, And I think starting out small, starting out saying I need to lose 50 pounds and exercise an hour in a day is not going to work. You need to start with very small, reasonable goals. I do have on the first page of headachedrugs.com a very good exercise and diet sheet. Well, that wraps up today's program. Join us every week on the Dr. Robbins Show and you can email us at DocLarryRobbins that's D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show featuring Larry Robbins, MD,
0: and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com.